0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. We'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever your podcast provider. I think um, uh, Podbean is probably quite popular at the moment, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. And really appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes of your time and leave us a review. So today joining Brian and myself in our virtual studio, we're going to talk to Dr Simon Cook, one of our lecturers in emergency and critical care here at the RBC. Um, And we thought we'd talk to Simon about a specific um, part of aspiration, humanopathy, which uh, uh, he and a couple of colleagues at the RBC recently written an uh, article about. So welcome, Simon, and thank you for joining us. Morning. Thanks very much for having me, I think. Oh, my pleasure. I, I, I was saying it's a, a few years since I uh, managed to um, uh, get you onto the onto the podcast and uh, a, di- a different environment out of out of our studio that I, d- I don't even know how how that uh, how that exists at the moment, Brian. But um, um, but but maybe uh, maybe we can get get back into there uh, in the in the new year.
1: Yeah, I so- hope my uh, soundproofing is good enough for you.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it'd be I'm sure it would be fine. So you, so Simon, you you recently um uh published something in JSA, but Actually maybe we should we should go uh, uh back a bit. So um so could you just briefly explain sort of what aspiration pneumonia is actually kindly and, and then maybe what an aspiration pneumonopathy means or what we're trying to sort of divide here?
1: Sure, yeah. So I suppose when we hear the term aspiration pneumonia, we think of the the infection, the bacterial infection that develops after a patient has aspirated, for example, gastric or oropharyngeal contents. Um, uh, so the, yeah, the infection that develops after that process, but I suppose that needn't necessarily always happen. And a patient might aspirate, for example, gastric contents with Varying degrees of, of, of bacteria, and actually only develop an inflammatory component, as opposed to a genuinely persistent infection. Um, and in that article, at least, we use the term aspiration pneumopathy to kind of recognise that there is a little bit of a continuum between those two, and they can, in the early stages, be very difficult to to tease apart. So, let's say a patient aspirates, um, be that you know a, a bunch of. Uh, Gastric contents that it was trying to vomit or regurgitating or were pooling in the back of the pharynx. Um, That patient, you know, there are lots of um, uh, feasible outcomes for that patient: being, you know, coughing it up and having no significant, um, no significant disease, uh, developing an acute inflammatory process in the lower airways. Um, which is mainly driven by the, for example, the acid component or the particulate matter component of what was aspirated, um, and then all the way through. So that that, that I suppose really just describing the the pneumonitis component, so the inflammatory part, um, or the own or the purely inflammatory part, uh, and then all the way through to that patient developing a, a clinically relevant uh, infection. Um, and then add into that the question over when antimicrobials are actually going to be of benefit, because presumably in the first of those two, there's not really any benefit. And in the second, or the, the, the latter group where there is a developing infection or, or as a minimum, the presence of bacteria, there's a question really over when and, and to what extent those patients require antimicrobials. So that was the basis of, of why we want to and why we need to really know a little bit more about the the, the clinical trajectory of those patients
0: and so when you looked at the data was it was under your impression so in the cases that uh, that we that we saw at the rvc that you thought that some of the patients we didn't actually prescribe antimicrobials to for whatever reason you just wanted to to have a bit more of a, a clarification of what were the characteristics of those patients is that the sort of question you want to answer.
1: Yeah, exactly. I guess it was just the start of, you know, we've always, we've always known about pneumonitis and always claimed that, you know, we should be able to tease apart or we should be trying to tease apart those patients with just a pneumonitis, just an inflammatory component and, and those that don't require antimicrobials. But we've never really known much more about it. There's nothing documented. Um, I knew that there were a handful of cases I'd been keeping track over time with the patients that I knew that we'd t- taken this approach with. And then when I did a little search, I found a few more. So the aim was just to describe them from the in the beginning, and then if there are sort of hypotheses that we can generate from that information, and and prospective monitoring or prospective interventional studies, even that we can we can. Um, Springboard into then, then I guess that was the ultimately the
0: aim, yeah. And so, um I mean, like with many retrospective studies, you said that hypothesis generation, but uh, that the you know seven years here, only we only managed to sort of find fourteen dogs, and you had to exclude a lot of cases. Do you think that? I suppose it's one of the problems perennial with the uh, um, with the veterinary literature is that, that we don't really have a huge amount of cases, apart from you know, the, the certain repositories asking. I suppose bigger pre- prevalence questions that we that we might sort of have now. But do you think that's a that's a problem with this with this data, or sure. or, or, or why did we why did you have to exclude? So many yeah, yeah, cases? yeah,
1: yeah. So um, yeah, as you say, the the the, the study. Um, Is of is is a retrospective of um, fourteen cases that which uh, dogs which had sustained an aspiration event and then, irrespective of the severity of the clinical picture, um, uh, didn't didn't receive or or didn't receive any um, antimicrobials and had a a successful outcome. Um, So that's the sort of just a summary in, in in brief. We were quite strict in those inclusion criteria in order that we can, you know, it's quite a sort of. Um, there would have it would have been quite a messy study if we had been less uh, strict, and so yes, we did have to exclude a few patients, which I expect would have um, fallen into that the same um, type of patients. Okay, so we, there were. A, I forget exactly the specifics, I'm afraid, but there were ten or so patients that we know had presented with evidence of aspiration, um, had received a single dose of antimicrobials, but based on the clinical trajectory, had those antibiotics um, withdrawn and, and had a completely successful recovery. But that you know we didn't have enough information on those, and we couldn't exclude quite how much of a benefit that single dose provided. But the chances are they're they're on a they're either the same population or on a very close continuum with the ones in the study but yeah we absolutely had to had to exclude some on that basis Uh, and also on the sort of the the diagnostic criteria used to to conclude that aspiration pneumonitis uh, was the disease process so some patients were "Quote unquote," diagnosed using ultrasound only, or the clinical suspicion was based on on the on the clinical picture and ultrasound only, um, as opposed to, to radiography. But we used radiography and airway sampling only uh, to decide, um, uh, to sort of, to confirm the, the the diagnosis. We didn't use solely ultrasound.
0: So, so you had quite sort of strict criteria that you were looking at, and obviously to make it a, a bit a bit cleaner, the data as you as you said. But I suppose looking at, at the future, what do you what do you think about um, ultrasound? Like it is. something thing that we're seemed we i suppose that's who we i suppose in the in the emergency um sense uh, point of care ultrasound is, is seeming to be more and more um commonly used and yeah. do, you, do you think we need a bit more of a handle on how to describe or interpret yeah. these to be consistent about it how how we where should we go with that
1: yeah i think that's um that's food for thought for the next few years isn't it really because because for sure there are there are um ultrasonographic findings that we are uh, getting better at, at being able to to consistently uh document and, and you know and certainly to build a case for the disease process you think is occurring like aspiration then i think ultrasound can be really really useful should it be used on its own i don't personally think we're we're there yet but but that said there will be patients in which that is the best that you can do or the most that is possible to 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 acquire and and you know i don't want to detract from the usefulness in that scenario but if we're to try and achieve gold standard i don't personally think we are there yet in terms of being able to to reliably document what we're reliably um yeah to know with certainty what we're seeing um and and also i think the thing that the the the, we're making a lot of some of a lot of assumptions when we are documenting these findings and and Concluding that there is a you know a, a worsening and improvement, we don't really know what that timeline looks like in patients that aspirate. So that's one of the first things that I'd really like to know is is the ultrasonographic findings over over time, um, uh, and trying and, trying to see how they how they change, how they evolve in 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 patients that are managed successfully, unsuccessfully, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I think there's a huge amount more information to be gleaned there before we have before we can be more certain about what we're we're seeing. So, yeah, I, I don't want to detract from its usefulness So completely. It's really, really handy in, in a patient-sized setting. You're getting a, a glimpse and a, a an index of suspicion for a diagnosis early on. Uh, I think that's incredibly useful. Um, but I think where possible, it should be supported by um, more traditional techniques like radiography uh, and like... Um, airway sampling
0: just sort of touch on one other thing in your in your sort of discussion about it and commenting that in in people sort of um, uh, those patients on gastric acid suppressants are more at risk for developing aspiration pneumonia obviously with limited number of cases it probably was difficult to 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 look at but do you think that's something that might be um, translated into our species that we deal with
1: Sure. Yeah, I think um, we don't have the we don't have the data yet. But but if if it is reasonable to make a, a hypothesis, at least from from people, then yes, the the use of um, uh, of gastric acid suppressants may well uh, or, or, or will increase the the uh, alter uh, and increase the the bacterial burden of those secretions and I suppose uh, or, or um, gastric contents as well. Um, uh, and may even send those uh, bacteria down a more of a a, a gram negative um, route in terms of what's colonizing the the pharynx, for example. Um, So yeah, there is a very real potential for it to be contributing, but we haven't got the data just yet. There's a a couple of um, sort of preliminary studies in in veterinary, but nothing is as concrete as there is in people. Um, But yeah, I think that the, the things that they use to decide whether so for example a patient aspirates you know human aspirates they are much more likely to prescribe antibiotics in a setting whereby they are on gastroprotectants or they have for example um uh, an obstructive process gastrointestinally because they're proposing or they know that the bacterial burden and the, potentially the pathogenicity of those bacteria uh, may well be increased. Um, and so as opposed to monitoring those as aspiration pneumonitis or self-resolv- self-resolving aspiration cases, uh, they are much more likely to prescribe anti uh, antimicrobials.
0: Okay. And and then I suppose we're, we're seeing, you know, an increase in number of uh, of certain um, breeds of dogs, uh, particularly in, in, say, the, the UK and, and the States, and, and I imagine sort of globally, particularly with the brachycephalic breeds. And do you think that we're that more at risk of, well, not more at risk, but because I suppose that GI signs um, might be more common or more prevalent in that breeds. that maybe this is quite important for the sort of future direction yeah. of, of how we treat these patients
1: yeah yeah I really do and I and actually and and it's the it's the brachycephalic population that I really really want to know more about um because it's all very well and good saying well I've got this young healthy dog that's vomited twice and has got some tachypnea great that's a really good candidate for um, for for monitoring, let's say you know you think it's got aspiration, uh, it's a really good candidate for monitoring without antimicrobials, assuming it's systemically relatively well. Um, but in these brackies, it's sometimes it's really hard. You can you can you can make a case for that in the first setting, where then they reaspirate within twenty four hours, and you're like, well, d- have I got the guts to keep withholding antimicrobials on the working uh, diagnosis that it was? Um, a uh, self-limiting aspiration pneumonitis without a, a genuine infection, and the, and the, and it gets increasingly hard, hard harder to do, to do that when they are, well, I guess that's the question, isn't it? Are they repeatedly aspirating, or are they just progressing through an aspiration pneumonia? And that's something that I really want to try and tease more apart um, from the cases that we see, because yes, unfortunately, we do see a lot of brachycephalic dogs with aspiration pneumonia, and we have recently just now that we're thinking a little bit more about it we have had a couple of cases of um uh, you know boas dogs uh, brachies that have, have have aspirated and we have taken this approach and um and have done absolutely absolutely fine but there are some sort of hairy moments and and it's those hairy moments that we need to kind of <laughs> try and minimize really by by finding out a little bit more and interrogating the the safety of this uh, approach um because yeah i think it's really it's going to be really awkward when they Either reaspirate or develop a pneumonia, and, and not knowing which is which is, is is the
0: million dollar question. I suppose you you raise like great points about sort of holding holding a nerve and in treating them, and also maybe also are we are we collectively, again, using the term we, and I don't know where that comes from, but, but collectively, are we, we practicing sort of defensive medicine with a lot of these cases and just thinking, well, the prospect of it could develop something and, and let's, let's give antibiotics. And and is that something that we need to review or, or have guidelines at least to help us with those sort of decision-making?
1: Yeah, I, I think we've probably got a little bit more scope for relaxing than we're aware of. I, I, like I've... It is very understandable why we have that approach, isn't it? You know, what what the what ifs, and the, um, I guess less so in this country, but the the risk of being sued, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think there is a bit more scope for for withholding and and, and monitoring, and and that's exactly what we want to try and uh, provide a little bit more confidence um, in. Um, yeah, I I don't I, I think I have a, a good answer to that, but yeah, we 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 need to be. Uh, better at that ultimately. Don't
0: and, and previously, I spoke to um, uh, uh, Tom Greensmith about aspiration pneumonia, and we, we we touched briefly on on duration of antimicrobials. And again, that that's something that um, um, historically in the veterinary literature has only recently it's sort of been been looked at. Um, but did you do you think that that element needs to be addressed again? And maybe we, yeah. you know, even if we are going to use antimicrobials, so the the duration needs to be. Definitely, lipid-out. yeah,
1: yeah. I think there's a huge scope for reduction of antimicrobial prescription lengths. Um, there's a couple of studies that are, are, are supporting that already. Um, the old four to six weeks, or or you know, until complete radiographic re- resolution, it's, it's it's completely un, uh, it's not evidence based in the slightest. Um, and in those um, sort of yeah, cautious studies in the last few years, they've documented no change in terms of outcome when there were short versus long courses and those short versus long courses, meaning I think the figures were in the sort of two weeks or less than two weeks versus more than two weeks um, and and using CRP to, to guide um, antibiotic prescriptions dropping the prescription length from four weeks to three week three weeks without um, any uh, repercussions so those were fairly sort of cautious um, studies but documenting uh, you know no real benefit to do to, to these disease to crazily long four to six weeks of antibiotic um, lengths but there's there's, there's plenty more to, to do there um so you know in in people with an aspiration pneumonia if there were no other, systemic signs of sepsis okay so if the, the a patient is otherwise stable in the, the other organ systems they're probably going to get five six seven days uh, and that'll be it um uh so yeah i do think there's a lot of progress still to be made there we know internally that our antibiotic prescription lengths are changing and reducing as well in 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 our hospitals so uh, i forget exactly the specifics but i think the last time i looked in two thousand 18 19 our median prescription length for aspiration pneumonia was down towards 12 days but we're quite readily prescribing shorter courses than that in our in our patients at the moment um granted it's not it's not um evidence-based but that's something that we can try and uh uh, well rather it's not published um but maybe we can have a closer look at that
0: see so um just a kind of, of of wrap up in a way simon Could you could you walk me through your current sort of decision making process and where to hold your nerves about maybe the patients you're considering not giving antibiotics immediately yeah um and and what might be the the triggers or or even areas if you like that um that we need to look at more to change that decision making to give antibiotics or to continue to as you said hold your nerve and yeah maybe not
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose the, the there's bound to be a population of dogs in which this isn't, you know, it, it isn't appropriate, right? So if, if you have a patient that you know is immunocompromised, you know has sustained the aspiration event um, in a hospital environment with previous exposure to antimicrobials, you know, you, you, you've got to be... Um, well, I don't think that would be the best candidate for, for withholding antimicrobials. And I suppose it's one that you'll be more inclined to to be securing your sample for culture because I can't underestimate the, or under-emphasize um, the importance of those cultures. But that's that's kind of a patient that you're going to need that really um, and having them on antimicrobials until that's back in order to make an informed decision. I suppose that's the, the direction for those patients. But the, the ones that we consider for withholding antimicrobials are those in which th- the cause of the aspiration event we suspect has been and gone. So for example, a lot of these were uh, patients that had had esophageal foreign bodies, where they've been um attempting they've you been know, retching retching salivating salivating inhaling having anesthesia at the same time uh and, and and aspirating during any one of those time points um but after that's been retrieved that patient's ultimately it was otherwise healthy it has no significant comorbidities um and we would expect it to make if as long as it's immun- immunocompetent we would expect it to make a full recovery and the thing that is um Reassuring is that if you see within a sort of a 12 24 hour time point a trajectory of improvement, be that for example an improvement in respiratory rate or effort, uh, an improvement in demeanor, um, uh, you know, the, the normalization of the temperature, a, 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 tr- a change in terms of that patient's. Um, uh neutrophil morphology all all those kind of things if you can find anything along those lines to suggest that there's an improvement or a stabilization then we would be we definitely would be considering them patients to be continuing the the withhold um of
0: antibiotics cool and so so what questions or what areas are we are you going to um look at in the future what or what Yeah, and specifically i suppose from from your your study what what do you want to What's the next thing on your hit list to to look at?
1: Yeah, I suppose um, they would be the the. As a separate but very related question, is going to be the the course length of, of antibiotics in these patients because I think there's a lot of room to be made there in terms of limiting the course length. I should add on to the sort of points we had before, um, the the sort of the um, consensus statements that we that we do have. Um, They're becoming more sort of aggressive and and, 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 um, proactive in terms of of advising us. So they're saying that if you are going to be prescribing antibiotics for patients with aspiration, for example, that the the prescription um, of antibiotics should be re-evaluated no later, they say, than 10 to 14 days after starting treatment. And at that stage, you should be... um, well, if the patient's clinically clinically well and the trajectory is very good, then there's no real reason for those to be continued. Um, but as a minimum, you need to be reevaluating them, and they're saying no later than ten to fourteen days. I think there's probably—I mean, we don't know without some more evidence. I'm not going to say that we. I'm not going to be so bold as to say that we, we we know, but I think there probably is some even more scope to be more aggressive than than even those timescales. Um, I went on a, on a tangent. I forgot the question. Uh, what else are we going to try and find out? So yeah, those interrogate those those prescription lengths, um, and then interrogate the the trajectory of the patients that don't benefit from antibiotics versus those that do, and see if we can start to tease apart those in a in a, in, in prospective studies. Um, and then yeah at the same time those the ultrasonographic findings because they are going to they are you know ultrasound POCUS is a, is a extraordinarily useful um adjunctive test and to to know a little bit more to know a lot more about how to use that and how best to use that and how reliably we can use it I think is going to be um it's going to be really really handy.
0: And, and can I just just sort of finally on the um like inflammatory markers so do you do you think that CRP, we need a bit more time to work out whether whether it's got any sort of significance in these cases, or or um, as in do we need yeah. like greater numbers or what? Do yeah, you, what are your
1: thoughts? Yeah, I think I think we do. I think uh, it, unfortunately, so in one of the studies so far, they did use CRP to guide antibiotic prescription length, and it was very useful in that study. But again, it was quite a cautious study, um, uh, and unfortunately, in in even in people, it can't always be used to 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 guide um, antibiotic prescription um, lengths, uh, and even some of these patients, we had dogs with CRP in the 1, 2, 300s, um, In uh, the, in in this population of dogs that we reported that yeah had had no requirement for antimicrobials. So unfortunately, it is not very it's not very clear cut, and there's what do we need yeah we're going to need hundreds of patients aren't we as opposed to uh, single and double digits um, if, if if in fact it is going to be useful to delineate it, it, it's probably more likely that we're going to need more variables combined in a bit more of an algorithmic uh, way to, to tease apart those patients rather than expecting to be able to do it with one uh, inflammatory marker
0: yeah i suppose that there's definitely more information that we need but it'd be not it'd be it'd be good wouldn't it to be able to provide um a bit more sort of guide guidance and and sort of i suppose like structured guidance on how to use these sort of tools but also you know what what things we should worry about about when to you know start antimicrobials or or de-escalate in the and the length of them and I think that you know that there's really positive positive things um and I, and I think that's why I was very you know excited to read that you you published this because we've spoken about it but it's something that that hopefully can you know drive a change in 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 practice and anything that reduces antimicrobials has has to be a a, a positive thing um for us all so yeah i think so there's that's a really
1: cool really cool directions that we can we can go on yeah absolutely
0: and, and Simon, so you, you, you've been keeping yourself busy um, on, on the uh, on the clinics and teaching and lecturing and doing all sorts of research, but but also you're you're sort of uh, trying to get into um, uh, h- helping people find uh, research because you could do um, tell a, tell us a little bit about what VetLit is and um, and what what are you doing with it?
1: Yeah, um, so yeah, well, I've been putting together and some of, I dare I say some of your listeners might have, have found it already but if you haven't then yeah ultimately I have put together a, a website and um, the address is is, is www.vetlit, so V-E-T-L-I-T.org. Um and it is um, a continuously updating website with um, links to literature from a number of important and popular journals. Um, ultimately the aim is to is, is to promote but also to make more accessible veterinary literature because I mean it's it's hard enough even when you have you know institutional access to every article that's published in the area but this website compiles them and combines them into um, topic areas uh, broadly anyway um, and yeah it's continuously updating with, with links to, to, to recently published articles so it, if you have institutional access or are happy to source the original articles, then then great, use it to, to, to find those um, articles. Um, but even if not, I think keeping up to date with, uh, you know, with the abstracts uh, still serves a real purpose. Um, and also remember that there are, um, not all journals require a subscription or institutional access. They're, they, they're what's called open access. And there are an increasing number of open access journals Um, I suppose the biggest one or the most relevant and popular one is the Journal of of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and that's completely open access now. So you don't need to be a a member of an institution or to have access or pay for any um, viewing rights to those articles. And I, and I suspect more and more journals are going to follow suit. So yeah, that's, that's the aim. And, um, I would hope that, that, that some or, 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 many of your listeners might, um, might find it useful. So, yeah.
0: We, we know from a number of people in, in our, in our hospital assignment, they've, uh, you know, in, in enjoyed it and used it as a, uh, a, a bookmark so they can, have a look at the um, you know a one a one site to to rule them all, so they can look at the different journal articles, or, or, or at least have a look at the abstracts from the RSS feeds, and um, you know follow the yeah. primary literature. So uh, so well done for for that a simple uh, idea, which is always the always the best um, to, to get out of there. So I hope people uh, check that out, and I think they can just subscribe, put in their email address, and and you're going to send them. Um, yeah, uh, is it weekly updates? So- or-
1: yeah. So then, as you say, there's an option on the site to um, to, to subscribe, um, and then I uh, assemble a handful of articles each month, which I think are important, um, and why I think they're important, and I'll send them to the to the mailing list. So yeah, do do come on board.
0: I suppose you just put a disclaimer that you're 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 not looking at this as a commercial entity. It's just to help the veterinary community. So well well done um, to you for that, and uh, and I hope uh, it um, uh, proves to be popular. And, and and with that, I'm sure the the veterinary community will will develop it and and make it grow. So so well done for that. Fingers crossed. So we'll wrap it up there, and many thanks for your time uh, today, Simon. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave a five-star review, please, on Apple Podcasts or, or Podbean or PodTracker or wherever you get your podcast, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or others. We'll place any show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.